absolutely delighted that we have as our guest today an old friend from my prior job at Duke, which was also his prior job. And he has agreed to come and talk to us about a period in Haiti's history that we haven't really addressed before. We have talked about on multiple episodes, including uh, with one of our guests, Laurent Dubois' colleagues, uh, Marlena, uh, we have talked about the Haitian independence debt of 1825. But whenever we teach our students about this fabulously interesting independence debt of 1825, they inevitably come back and ask us, well, what about the debts that resulted from the US occupation of Haiti roughly 100 years later, 1915 to 1934. And we always have to tell them, look, that's 100 years later. We don't really know that much about it. But our students have persuaded us that that is another period of Haitian history and colonial occupation that is worth thinking about, particularly from a financial perspective. And I say particularly from a financial perspective, not to say that that is the most important perspective, just that that's the perspective that Mark and I bring to most of our analysis. So our guest today is Laurent Dubois from the History Department at the University of Virginia. He is multi-talented and multifaceted in that he is known not only for his work in history, uh, but also his work on sports. And I think I primarily had seen him at the Keenan Institute on panels on football. And so welcome, Laurent. We are so thrilled uh, to have you here, but just one one last point, I, I can't help but uh, bring this up. I know of Laurent's work, not because I was paying attention to all of the wonderful stuff that was happening at Duke all the time, uh, but I'm embarrassed to say that it was because I was working on the Congo and one of my heroes, Adam Hookshield, uh, said to me when I was asking him questions about King Leopold's rule in the Congo, he said, you know, you should really get to know your amazing colleague, Laurent Dubois, who has this wonderful new book about Haiti. And uh, I was just embarrassed that Adam, speaking to me from San Francisco, had to tell me about I, how I had this amazing colleague. So welcome, Laurent. We're so thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. And it's great. It's wonderful to be now your colleague at UVA and to have this chance to explore it. And I really enjoyed speaking to your students a few weeks ago on this topic. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great to be here and I look forward to the conversation. such an important <laughs> one. Thank you. So I'll start with the first question before I let Mark ask any questions. I'm really interested in how you got, how you got so engaged with Haitian history, I had always assumed before meeting you that you had maybe grown up in Haiti or you had grown up in France with a connection to Haiti. Uh, I was really shocked to realize that you had grown up in the US and 
now you are one of the leading historians about Haiti. How did that happen? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I grew up in the United States in Bethesda, Maryland, specifically. My parents migrated from Belgium when I was a very young child. Um, so I grew up in a Francophone space, uh, French at home, and a somewhat of a global community because a lot of the connections around my family were in the National Institutes of Health and this, you know, kind of global scientific community. Um, but I really didn't didn't know much about Haiti or really think about it much at all until college. Um, and I mean, I had been, I had grown up in Washington, DC and had a kind of broader sense of the African-American history of the city. Um, but it was, it was in really the first couple of years I was in at the university, um, was a time of you know great transformation and turmoil in Haiti. Uh, it was the years right after the overthrow of Duvalier, um, a moment of, of migration, a moment when questions about migration policy in the US were front and center. Um, but then also specifically a time when at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, there were theories circulated that uh, that basically blamed Haitians for having basically almost created AIDS for having been the vector of, of the emergence of this disease. Um, and of its arrival in the United States. Um, and these theories had extremely direct and consequences for Haitians who were discriminated against in all kinds of ways. Um, but at one point, the, the Red Cross banned uh, blood donations for Haitians. Um, and interestingly, this prompted what, 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 what in historically is, was one of the largest demonstrations around the AIDS epidemic when a massive demonstration kind of crossed the Haitian communities in Brooklyn mobilized and crossed into Manhattan to uh, protest in front of the Red Cross and FDA buildings. Um, and as this was unfolding, I was in a series of classes where I was beginning to read Caribbean literature and Haitian literature from a, a wonderful colleague, a uh, wonderful colleague now at that time, my professor, uh, Barbara Browning, who teaches at New York University. So I was starting to read just kind of through an interest in African-American history about the Caribbean. Um, and these moments converged. Um, and I, I noticed something, which is that the, the place of Haiti in the American imagination is so profound and so intense and has is connected to so many negative ideas. Um, and that the way that we think about Haiti, I think, tells us a lot about, you know, what, what how we are as a nation, really what we are as a nation. And I was also just curious to understand two things. One was, how is it that you could to sort of put out a, a what was a really spurious and, and bad scientific theory. Um, and this I knew because my parents, the scientists, were involved in research on AIDS and kind of confirmed to me that um, no one really knew the origin of the disease and that whatever pe these people were saying was essentially, you know, off the cuff um, and had no real scientific basis. Nevertheless, it kind of gained a certain kind of status as truth. And that was that was I realized because of what Haiti means in the kind of American imagination. Um, so that was just kind of a, a trigger for me, that moment historically, you know, the, the courage of Haitian Americans who were mobilizing their political voices, and then this this question of like, how did we get here? Um, and that's that took me from the beginning, in fact, in the very first work that I did on Haiti was about the US occupation of Haiti, um, and sort of trying to understand how that occupation, which is often forgotten and overlooked in, in US history, had left many profound traces um, in, in our cultural landscape and our cultural imaginary. So, um, and that that paper actually, I'll, I don't know if the two of you have ever read the book Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed, but that original paper, um, that novel in, a, in an interesting way kind of uh, puts its finger on this question of, of Haiti and the US imaginary. So I wrote about kind of the way fiction almost illuminated um, the history we were living through at that time. And um, really since then I've been 
deeply interested in Haiti and see it as a place from which you can really, um, you know, connect to really almost all, all crucial moments in, in the global history of the last 400, four to 500 years um, have, I think, deep connections to, to, the, to the place, so. So Lauren, that, that answer is really interesting in, in part because it highlights what is a really long historical arc here. And, and I, one of the things that I have struggled with, and I think Me Too, uh, Me Too may struggle with this as well, is how to convey to our students, taking into account the limits of our own knowledge, but how to kind of convey the historical links between the 1825 indemnity and the period of American intervention in the, the early 20th century. And I'm wondering, without sort of getting us too bogged down in the weeds, I'm wondering if you can just give us a sense of what the U.S.'s broader strategic goals are at the time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I understand them to have something to do with concerns about minimizing the role uh, of European powers in the hemisphere and so forth. But can you give us a, a little bit of the context about what the U.S. objectives are and how the role of finance is linked to them? Definitely. And, you know, it is a very complicated history. I mean, I do sometimes, I find it useful conceptually in some ways to just put forth what is at stake in, in the Haitian kind of context, because it's something that is in a way at stake, you know, from the 17th and 18th century all the way to the present day in a way, which is which is the kind of clash or, or conflict between different economic models at base. And it's between one world, and this is what the United States was sort of vehicling and, and kind of uh, trying to establish in Haiti, one vision, which is essentially a vision that Haiti um, should be a plantation society, right? That, that at the end of the day, the role of this place in the Caribbean is to be the producer of agricultural commodities for export. And the role of its people is to be laborers in that system, right? Uh, a kind of extractive system. Um, and that is something that, of course, the French had established this in the beginning with the colonial Saint-Domingue. Then there's the overthrow of that system, a long struggle around that, the kind of nature of what should replace it. Um, and I often use this term developed by Jean Casimir, who's a, who's a Haitian intellectual whose book I translated, um, which is the counterplantation system, which is how he describes really Haitian kind of the core of Haitian rural culture, which is, you know, anti-plantation and, and trying to develop other forms of economic development um, or economic power that are based on independence, autonomy, local agriculture, export economies, but based on a sort of um, a very different model for how things are produced. And I would say that the U.S. occupation is a pivotal moment in the history of that conflict because the U.S. in its expansion into the Caribbean um, is actually really driven by, uh, and the, the ideas for expansion go back even to, to before the Civil War, when there's actually a desire to expand the South, southwards, as it were. Um, and there are all, all these plans from the kind of U.S. plantocracy um, that, who kind of dream of adding Cuba and maybe the Dominican Republic and other parts of the Caribbean. The places that they target are, are specifically um, some of the places that are independent by then, which is uh, the, the Dominican Republic and Haiti stand out in that regard, rather than those that are controlled by other European empires. But there's a long idea that that the that the U.S. could really kind of appropriate the South, but it's it's an idea based on the idea that these are plantation societies that could become part essentially of of a, of a larger U.S. plantation 
uh, matrix. Obviously, that changes after the Civil War, but it never quite goes away. And um, the, the sort of stated interests at the time of the occupation are strategic um, in the sense of having to do with, you know, the outbreak of World War II, German influence and those sorts of things. But really, um, I mean, Roger Gaillard, who is the great historian of the U.S. occupation in Haiti, kind of has this phrase in one of his books, which is sort of like in 1915, they just had to open up a drawer and in it, they had plans for the occupation of Haiti that had been developed for some, quite some time. So I would say that the real plan was really about doing what the U.S. was successfully doing in Puerto Rico and in Cuba, um, which is to kind of reconstruct and reinvigorate plantation economies, but with U.S. ownership. And I guess the, the striking thing about the story is that the U.S. went into Haiti with that sort of image and never achieved it, right? So there, there is actually, and there are multiple failures in the U.S. occupation, but certainly that economic project uh, was not successful, um, even despite significant, you know, um, significant uh, resources poured behind it, including literally rewriting the Haitian constitution in ways, you know, to make it possible. Laurent, if you wouldn't mind, and this, this is, uh, I, I, I realize it's an unreasonable question, even as I ask it, but I think you have made this connection before. And so uh, before we get into the various financial and political interests uh, driving the 1915 occupation, can you draw the line for us between the 1825 independence debt and the indemnity that the French impose on Haiti and the involvement of the French banks in funding Haiti's repayment of that. And then the 1915 period mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. as I understand it from your writing, the US replaces France in some sense. Although if one looks even today, I mean, the US never completely replaces uh, right. France right. in Haiti, but there does seem to be something of a transition. And it, it's mm -hmm. something that our, my students uh, and Mark students often uh, point out, which is, yeah, that at some point the US banks start funding the repayment of the mm -hmm. indemnity. And all of this is framed within the indemnity. And I'm not sure whether that's the right framing, uh, but it's a convenient framing when, when one is focused on debt like we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that you probably covered, you, know, you certainly covered this in your, in your conversation with Marlena Doubt as well. But, you know, part of it is the, just to remind you listeners of the, the double debt concept, right? So the idea that the France levies an indemnity in 1825, the Haitian government is forced to directly pay the French government. However, they're unable to, to, to pay that amount. And so they immediately actually contract debts from French banks to pay France's government, right? Um, so what you have is the beginning of a, you know, unfortunate, a very unfortunately precocious experience that Haiti has with, with, with debt um, that becomes more familiar later for other countries, but in which they're they're kind of saddled by simultaneously the the the, the fact that they have to pay these these yearly um, payments to France to to stay and you know and uh, to, to to kind of fulfill that agreement that is signed. Uh, by the kind of dictatorial leader of, of, of Haiti in 1825, Boyer. Um, and then in order to do that, they have to kind of engage with French banks so that the debt, um, the payment of the indemnity becomes a kind of, uh, you know, a way in for French banks who come in and begin to control Haitian finances. They're not alone. You know, there are also German interests. 
um, and U.S. interests do grow over the 19th century. Um, so you have this kind of structural debt that is being serviced, right? And that, of course, for banks is, is of great interest, actually, because they're levying interest payments on these. And the Haitian government is kind of dutifully paying these, these, they do pay every single year. You know, they never default on the payments for the indemnity or the debts, but the debts get, of course, bigger and bigger in time. Um, and you just have a situation where the Haitian treasury is constantly um, kind of burdened by this. Um, and part of the implication, of course, is all of the other things that might have been done with that money, um, which as a reminder is actually paid, paid to France, the French government, so that they can give it to former planters. Um, to kind of compensate them for their losses, which, which include their losses in human property, right? Because they were slave owners before. So that process, I would say, has multiple implications in Haiti. But one of them is that it does so and help to encourage a certain kind of level of political conflict for a variety of reasons we can keep kind of get into. Um, and foreign, foreign interventions kind of help urge on some of that conflict as well um, in terms of who they're arming and the Germans are involved and the U.S. in certain ways and the French, all of this. So this kind of whole matrix of the foreign presence in Haiti through the port towns sets all the stage essentially for the U.S. occupation. Right. So, um, I mean, another way of putting it is that the, the, the very political conflicts and and in specifically the kind of killing of a, of a president um, that is the trigger for the U.S. occupation in 1915. All of that is set up, of course, by a kind of an economic and political situation that has been long in development um, and many of, and to a large extent, is tied to the 1825 indemnity. Not exclusively, obviously, and there's plenty of other things going on, um, but there is a way in which that that weird structuring of the Haitian state as 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 basically almost from its origins structurally in debt you know, means that the, the nature of the Haitian state itself is basically defined almost by that. You know, it's very hard to separate those histories. If there's, there's, you know, 1825 is just 20 years after independence. Um, the country's just really coming out of a civil war at that time and starting to establish itself. So ever since, you know, you have on some level, you have a, the whole history of the Haitian state is intertwined with the history of debt. And so that the U.S. occupation then it kind of reinvigorates and reconfigures that, that structure and twist, there's twists and turns to it at that time. But really it's a kind of, um, it's a, both a continuity and a rupture. There are obviously things that the U.S. occupation begins that are really different than what had happened before, which we could you know, go into. Um, but I hope that, that, so the connections there, I think hopefully are pretty clear. And it is a way in which the other bigger global point is that the U.S., by the late 19th century is absolutely thinking of itself as competing with the European empires specifically. And I think people are aware of this, but it really has a lot to do with the steamboat and the need that for coaling stations around the world um, as the US develops its Navy and that kind of puts it in competition. And that's actually one of the reasons why the US starts looking at Haiti as well as Cuba um, for coaling stations in the late 19th century. But so the U.S. is really thinking of itself as beginning to, to, to compete as an empire. And, you know, the people have trouble sometimes thinking about the U.S. as an empire. But when you read the language of the time, um, it is it is extremely close to the language that the French and the British are using when they describe places like Haiti or Cuba or the Philippines, um, Hawaii. I mean, you can go through the whole all, all these different areas, but there is absolutely a kind of um, imperialist language yeah, about it. Um, and in that sense, that th there's a kind of convergence there. And the U.S. sees the Caribbean in particular 
as a place that really should be under its, you know, under its direct influence um, by the late 19th century. So before we go to break, can can I ask you a, a somewhat more specific question, I think, about the role of National City Bank, and maybe there were other bank, U.S. banks involved, but National City is the one that, that leaps to my mind. One of the episodes that grabs our students' attention most forcefully is the, I think it's 1915 and the removal of the Haitian gold reserves um, mm-hmm. uh, with the participation of U.S. Marines. And I, I'm wondering if we can, uh, if we can just uh, get a little bit of a uh, tour through the involvement of National City Bank in the um, uh, uh, sort of refinancing of this mm-hmm. legacy European debt, uh, and then maybe talk about that that episode in 1915 with the the gold reserves. Yeah, and it's it's essentially that again. Yeah, National City is is slowly over time beginning to kind of take on certain of the debts, right, and sort of offering um, to take over some of the debts, and then begin. So so there's a sort of movement within the banks from French French banks to American banks. Um, Kind of agreements with between them in a certain way, right? Um, that um, and to be honest, I think some you know there has there has been some historical work on this, but there's a lot more that we we could learn about exactly those um, and thinking about what the documents would be about all that. Um, uh, Peter Hudson has a, an interesting book on banks in the Caribbean that that lays out some of this in more detail. But I would say that from a let's say there's some there's more economic and banking history to be done on this. But the the way that it kind of pl- plans pans out is that at this point. In the, ninth, in the early 1900s, there are increasingly crises at, at the level of the Haitian state and debts being defaulted and non-payment and a change of regimes, rapid change of several regimes. And so at some point, National City Bank essentially decides to take the action that, you know, they're not getting paid for debts um, and they go, in, they, they go in and they, with the Marines sort of seize gold reserves um, with the argument that... Um, you know that that Haiti has is, is irresponsible and is not paying the debts, and this is the only way for them to kind of get security on, on the loans they've made. Um, and it really is a very striking moment where you kind of see how how the U.S. and the banks are are perceiving Haiti, right? That it's sort of just the idea that it's sort of okay to do this in a sovereign country. Um, what that looks like and what it means and what it symbolizes for Haitians, I think, is you know really striking. And you can, in retrospect, you know later on, you can see it as really a prequel to to just going in with troops and taking over the country. Not that long afterwards, but it's yeah. So I think that that's and then and then once the U.S. is in control, of course, National City and the banks are are now. Um, Kind of reassured because the U.S. just takes control of the Haitian budget, right? Um, and essentially, so it's kind of the let's say the seizing of the gold reserves is kind of a prequel to just a, a full-on um, kind of taking over of the budget. And again, the argument being made consistently, right, is that this country is essentially that the country as a whole is essentially defaulting on its responsibilities to foreign um, to foreign banks, and that um, that that is one of the things that helps justify. Um, and then, to, to, as we were talking about earlier, some of it is also then the kind of concern, right, that this condition, that this situation creates opportunities. There is a significant German uh, kind of merchant community in Haiti um, that has developed through the 19th century, connections to Hamburg that actually went back to the 18th century. Um, but so there is, there is, it's it's true that there are these kind of Haitian merchants who are married into Haitian families, and there has been a German presence for some time. So that's that's that sort of in the immediate strategic context. The the concern is that like the the upending of 
of the of the situation and the kind of chaotic situation on the ground will create sort of some kind of opening for you know German sphere um, as well. But that but all of this I think has to do with essentially what is essentially competition among a small group within the ports towns of both banks and Haitian elites and others who are kind of competing over um, over the banking and government systems. Well, that was that was fabulous. But we have so many more questions uh, <laughs> and, to ask you about this. And well. It's time for us to take uh, a short break, but after the break, we'll go deeper into the occupation. And I want to start with the complicated role of the US president at the time. So let's take a break. So we're back from the break and I want to move us to the occupation and the driving factors for the occupation. Now, from a legal perspective, if one is thinking about matters such as liability for wrong things that were done, uh, and I, I won't drag Laurent into the weeds of the legal implications, but the one question that is potentially quite important is what drove the occupation? and reading the history as a non-historian, there seem to be conflicting pressures here or factors. On the one hand, there is a lot of talk from Wilson's government and Wilson himself about the need to bring democracy and self-determination to the nations of the world. I mean, Wilson is one of the primary authors of this notion of self-determination that seems so progressive. And on the other hand, there is National City and its financial interests. And then there is a, a third set of pressures that surely were operational at the time, which is the complicated relationship of the US and particularly the US South with race and the notion that a people so close by would have revolted against slavery and created a democratic nation. So Laurent, which of these factors is really driving this? So I have read accounts that uh, talk about race as the primary driver. I've read accounts that talk about national city and its financial interests as the primary driver. And then there are accounts about this sort of uh, complicated Wilsonian notion of self-determination and bringing democracy uh, to the to the world, what's going on? And I, I realize, as a historian, you must hate this question because you, you know, you you do think the the world is complicated, and I'm trying to simplify it. <laughs> so yeah, our answer is like, well, it's all of these things. It's all very complex. But but I do think that um, I think there are ways of of parsing out certain things, right? One thing that I think is rather important is when when you get into the concrete decision making, you know, why why Wilson sent troops in 1915. Um, is that I don't think the strategic concerns were were not were were completely irrelevant. I mean, I think they helped kind of trigger something, and helped to justify something. Um, but it's also true that the financial interests, including those of industrialists who had been interested in who had some of whom had been involved in trying to build railroads, and again here the Cuban model is central because 
um, after 1898, the U.S. really, U.S. kind of financial interest and really moves into Cuba. And they're seeing that as kind of a model, right, that they can kind of help revive a sugar economy in Cuba. Um, a whole kind of new kind of context is emerging in that context. And in some ways, people just think of Haiti as some, somewhat, so the industrialists, I think, think of it as kind of the next logical step. Um, you know, you can rebuild sugar plantations in Haiti. After all, that's what the colony was based on in, in the 18th century. Um, they, this group of people are tightly linked to the State Department, right? They have a, so kind of the Haitian expertise that the, that the State Department consults is all basically these, these people who have been involved as American businessmen trying to go into Haiti in the interest of plantation growth. So in some level, this, the state and the financial interests are just super intermingled when it comes to looking at Haiti. And there are definitely financial interests that help encourage the government to go in. Whether the United States knows what it's getting into when it invades Haiti, I think is an open question. I don't think they really do. In other words, I think there's a sense that a short occupation can make sure the Germans don't, don't kind of get involved somehow and that you know the sphere of influence is safe. And then that will kind of make things safe for the business interests and they can put in a pliable government um, and then probably leave. I mean, I think I think that's probably the basic idea, right? Actually, in, in Cuba, the U.S. occupies formally only for four years and then leaves and then essentially is able to kind of have power in all kinds of other ways um, that are continuing. So I don't think that the they that anyone has an idea that this will last 20 years. Um, and one of the reasons it lasts 20 years is because of the depth of the Haitian resistance to the occupation, which then creates its own set of conditions, right? Um, and kind of highlights the contradictions of the US occupation. In other words, they're unable to do a kind of convenient and short occupation where they sort of pretend to be shoring up a democratic government or putting in somebody and then leave. Instead, they run into a much more intense situation of, of conflict, including you know, a mass, mass rural uprising against the occupation a few years after they arrive. So that changes everything. And I guess that's just one of those cases where we, we can't go through all the details. But I think that the last thing I would say is that race is very important. Um, it, I would say that all of the cultural and race questions kind of undergird the decision to go in, because even as Wilson is kind of promoting democracy and sovereignty, of course, the United States is repressing the rights of African-Americans, right? And Wilson is famously on that side and, um, you know, has expelled African-Americans from the federal government, has done all these sorts of things. So within the U.S., there's a clear sense among the, the dominant groups uh, in, in government that kind of African, that the kind of denial of African-Americans of, of certain kinds of voting rights or citizenship rights is essentially acceptable and that the kind of Jim Crow structure is in place and on really on the rise. I mean, you have in the summer of 1919, a wave of lynchings of many of them of African-American soldiers who've returned from World War I. Um, so in a sense, there's, there's you know, de democracy is being proclaimed, but it's refused to certain groups within the United States. And I think Wilson at the end of the day can imagine sovereignty for, for small nations, but not for a black nation like Haiti especially a black nation whose very existence has always been seen as kind of a threat in the United States and worth reminding listeners that the US is the last nation to recognize Haitian independence and does so only in 1862, basically because Southern senators and others do not want to have a kind of black diplomat in Washington that they have to treat with as an equal or that's at least one of the main reasons. So I would say all these things merge and the unfolding of the occupation is a really fascinating story because of course, 
it is, they, they, these are un, unpredicted consequences. And I think they find themselves in a situation that is very different from what they expected. Um, and that leads to a kind of 20 year occupation. And in some ways, um, you know, a reshaping of the entire Haitian 20th century as a result. So Laurent, I've read your chapter on the occupation. Actually, you've written so much about this that there, there are probably multiple places where you have talked about the occupation. And the, the cha- chapter is, has, is beautifully rich in terms of talking about what happens during the occupation, including an, at least multiple massacres that occur and the Cocos and the Haitian resistance. But I'm hoping if you are willing that we can, that we ask you a little bit about the US financial interests and how they develop during the occupation. And uh, I realize that they, the US stays longer than they planned. There, there is much more resistance, but national city also engineers lending uh, to Haiti. I I think if memory serves, there is a big uh, bond that is issued uh, by Haiti, but actually really just engineered by uh, New York, the New York banking sector in 1922. It's the Haitian gold loan that then, uh, and Mark will correct me, I mean, gets paid uh, beautifully and on time from the investor perspective, uh, that no risk of default, but perhaps a lot of this is driven by the fact that if they don't pay, the U.S. will just make them pay. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, the financial control of Haiti is, is one thing that lasts far after the occupation, right? Um, there is a way in which part of the occupation is just about being in charge of the Haitian government budget. Right um, about and here it's there's a, there's a very kind of colonial articulation of it. It's essentially you know these people aren't capable of handling their own finances. We're going to go in there and we're going to put you know we're going to kind of order things and make sure the account books are good and we'll just need to be in charge of the Haitian treasury and the Haitian government. Right um, and at the very beginning you know there's a whole story here which is that significant chunks of the Haitian elite or oligarchy. Um, collaborates willingly with the U.S. occupation, right? So, I mean, there is no open resistance. There's one There's one soldier killed, a Haitian soldier killed on the night of the occupation and one American soldier killed from friendly fire, um, as they call it. Um, but that the, 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 there is not a resistance at first and many actually of the Haitian elite kind of agree actually that the U.S. Will help them kind of order things, right? And that the kind of there's a, a huge, a huge admiration for the United States among certain sectors of the of the Haitian, um, again, this the kind of wealthy population, and they see there is an agreement in some ways among sectors of that group and the U.S. Um, to kind of rationalize things, right? Um, but then relatively quickly, problems and tensions emerge. Um, in particular, and this is kind of key around um, a provision of the Haitian constitution that had existed since 1804 that said that no white person could come and become a property owner in in Haiti, right? Um, And this is something that the industrialists had noticed, you know, as they were trying to build railroads and stuff earlier, that this was in their way, essentially, right? That this was a big problem that the constitution didn't have, didn't allow foreigners to come in and, and buy land 
And you know, the reasons for this are, you can kind of imagine are pretty clear. It was originally just directed against people who wanted to come back as, as slave owners or try to reestablish plantations. Um, but that's really the key because the financial interests, the industrialists who are imagining that they could build plantations and have Haitians work on them um, in sugar, perhaps in coffee or bananas or other kinds of areas, um, more, it's really, it, some of it is the fruit stuff, but a lot of it is the sugar. Um, they also need, you know, they need investors in that. They need a banking system that works in Haiti. They need roads and railroads. Um, they, the whole vision is right to quote unquote, develop Haiti into um, a kind of renewed plantation agriculture. And all of the financial infrastructure is, is kind of put in place to help that project. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of all of a piece, I would say that the, the government occupation the banking system going in and then working with, again, with US government officials, but also Haitian bankers and Haitian merchants um, to kind of create a kind of what they believe will be a kind of rational. And I, you know, I think they really believe that many of them on both sides, that this is gonna be the way to develop the Haitian economy. Um, and the problem for them is that the most, the, the Haitian population has since 1804 been completely committed to a totally different economic model. Um, that does not involve working as uh, you know on plantations for for foreign kind of companies, right? And so that's where the clash occurs: is that they there's a vision that is somewhat shared between certain Haitian leaders and the United States, and then there's the Haitian population that is really in a completely different place um, and looking in a totally different direction. And that's really the key to to why the occupation unfolds the way it does. Can we um, talk a little bit about the? the window of time between the treaty uh, between the US and Haiti in 1915 and the series of loans that begins, I think in 1922. So mm -hmm. my understanding of that history is so limited, but insofar as I understand anything, Haiti is essentially under fiscal supervision at the time. And there's a, a US appointed advisor, is it John McElhenney? And the U.S. comes to assume really significant control over governance, including uh, the right to veto legislation and things like that. Yeah. If I, I'm just trying mm -hmm. to remember my uh, Emily Rosenberg's book, which I read not that long ago. What is happening in that window that's leading up to the, the loan that National City arranges? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really crucial window. So that, I mean, at the, at the beginning, there's a sort of sense of of collaboration, like the Haitian parliament is still going to exist and there'll be a Haitian president and, you know, the U.S. will be kind of helping almost like be advisors a little bit, you know, um, and very, although very early on, they start to, well, they start to think about how, how are they going to reform the, the Haitian army and the Marines are, there's, you know, significant military, U.S. military presence. Um, but then there's a kind of clash that develops over the U.S. wanting to rewrite the Constitution to eliminate, in part, in particular, again, to eliminate this provision on the limitation of foreign land ownership. And there is significant parliamentary resistance at that point. Um, you know, Haitian parliament has been in place for a long time. There's a history of parliamentarianism. And, you know, this would, in principle, obviously not need to be ratified uh, by the Haitian parliament. Um, and there's there's refusal and, and a kind of resistance on the part of, of again, members of this you could call them Haitian oligarchy or elite who um, at first had welcomed the, the U.S. in many ways and thought, okay, this will help us kind of get things back on track. And then they start to, to see and be concerned that this is really about the U.S. taking away kind of crucial aspects of Haitian sovereignty. Um, and there's articulate resistance, um, verbal resistance to that. 
and the US ultimately just decides to dismiss the parliament and put this through anyway, right? So that's the stage where you can say, you know, that there's a whatever facade of democracy there was at the beginning. Um, obviously, when you get rid of a of an elected body because they they you don't know, like what they're saying, um, you have kind of stepped stepped over the line there. Um, and then simultaneously, they are uh, starting to use forced labor in the countryside to build the roads that the industrialists want and that the Marines want to sort of better control the country, right? So there's this whole program of road building that starts in 1917 and, and into 1918 really. Um, and they use Haitian laws that are on the books that allow you to essentially force you know, populations in rural areas to do court, what's called corvée labor, right? Um, where they have to for a week or two or even more come and, and do this pu public works labor for free. People are resisting, the Marines are gathering men up and sometimes tying them with ropes together and dragging them to the, to the forced labor areas. Um, the great fear of Haitian history from the beginning was that a group of whites would come back and try to return slavery and, and re-enslave the population. And here you have a kind of deeply visible manifestation of, of something along those lines. Um, and you know, not surprisingly, there's then an armed uprising that begins in the countryside in 1918. And between 1918 and 1919, there's a major war in Haiti uh, where the US Marines with Haitian troops that they're training um, to create a kind of Haitian army that is created specifically to repress this rural revolt, are fighting rural rural rebels who themselves are, many of them are former off, former army. Um, and eventually the US triumphs in that battle. They have, they have, they use aerial bombardment. They have machine guns. They have, you know, more, more better armament. Um, there are troops that come from World War I who come to Haiti to fight in this war. Um, and that is the kind of, that's fundamental, right? Is that they defeat the, 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 the military insurrection by 1919. And then I think move into a stage of trying to kind of justify the occupation through, through schools. Like there's a whole different ethos that happens in part because that whole campaign is covered in the US media, becomes something that Wilson's opponents use against him in the election process um, and becomes kind of an embarrassment. And there's actually a whole congressional um, investigation in 1920 to 21 of the of the various abuses and atrocities committed in Haiti during that time. Uh, you know, there's an 800 page uh, book of all of the and Haitians come and testify. Massive investigation of this. So then you get, and I would say 1922 with that agreement with National City is this kind of moving into this new phase of really trying to kind of justify almost like a development model of the occupation. Right, um, we're going to elevate the economic system here and show that what we're really here about is a kind of rationalization and, and development in Haiti. Um, and it's really fascinating to see the shift in that discourse. They also create a school for agriculture, that, et cetera. So the 1920s have a very different feel. Um, and it's in the wake of that military defeat. Of course, Haitians in the countryside, of course, very well remember the atrocities of, that are carried out still to this day, in fact. So it's not like that's forgotten, but there is no longer really, a, there seems like they're not an option for open insurrection. And so resistance takes its different forms. Laurent, I, I, we're, we are unfortunately coming close to the end of our podcast, but I have so many more questions to ask you. So I'm gonna try to sneak in at least one more, if Mark doesn't mind. And I, I'm wondering about how th this, sort of new model that 
the US tries to put in place after the hearings in 1921 and the congressional investigation. Although if I remember correctly, the end result of the investigation is, oh, we didn't do anything wrong. We, we were just doing all the right things, um, mm -hmm. but not surprising. But how does this, how does this morph into the Duvaliers who, I, I don't mm -hmm. think it's um, very controversial to say that they're basically a US creation. And then, I mean, Haiti is never able to borrow on the international markets mm -hmm. again. Uh, I mean, this sort of historically, when my students ask me about, you know, Haitian uh, in activity on the international bond markets, I have to tell them, yeah, there was a lot of activity in the 1800s and the 1900s, mm -hmm. early 1900s, but they, they've been completely closed off. So what, like, how did this, this transition into the horrible years of the Duvalier, and then, you know, we've had more US and French controlled puppets after that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question and, and so complex, but it's true that Duvalier really, you know, he, he, he's educated in a school set up by the US. He actually spends a year at the University of Michigan. He's a doctor. He gets, he has very, you know, his, his life is absolutely shaped and, and in many ways, you know, shaped crucially by the US occupation years. Although interestingly, he's also part of these kind of currents of intellectual resistance to the US occupation um, that are also important. <laughs> and so he kind of crafts an, a very interesting combination of a kind of very nationalist um, vision for Haiti and a particularly a kind of a sense that he represents the black population of Haiti against kind of lighter skinned um, people who had been most common or more common in the government with um, a kind of ultimately an order, a dictatorial order that the United States supports and is glad is in place because it's anti-communist. Um, and the crucial thing for Duvalier, I mean, he, he gets elected in a, you know, kind of shady and complicated election, but is is kind of proclaimed as the elected president and then slowly begins to, um, to kind of take more and more control. And at first, in some ways, the US, in fact, John Kennedy is not thrilled about Duvalier and there's even some, some ideas of perhaps trying to overthrow him. Um, but by the time of the, of the Cuban revolution in 1959, um, the basic major question for the US in the Caribbean is how to sort of isolate Cuba. And so Duvalier, because he takes a stand against Cuba and kind of promises to continue that stance, and because he's repressing left movements in the country, ultimately becomes a, a real ally of the United States, um, essentially. And But there's never, you're right, that there's a kind of, since the occupation, I mean, the Haitian economic relationship with the rest of the world has been one of basically total, total subjugation, right? There isn't a kind of mechanism for, for Haiti to kind of establish its own economic or financial model. Um, and it's gone all of the different versions of it that we know about in the 20th century, you know, the, the IMF versions more recently, et cetera, have, but they've, there is a way in which there's a kind of consistent, the consistent fact, right, that the state in Haiti is not able to, you know, articulate an independent direction really almost at any time. Um, and I think that's where we still are today. And it's, it's one of the reasons why the Haitian political situation is what it is. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we we could keep you here all day, but um, unfortunately, I I don't think that we're allowed to do that. But um, hopefully, we can continue this conversation, uh, which has been so so helpful for for me, and I know I can speak for me too on that too.